church. Just the blessing it is to be your people gathered together in the presence of your spirit, singing songs that just remind us of how good you are and, and, and of the salvation you provided for us in Jesus. I thank you for the Lord's table this morning and the very tangible reminder it is of, of the sacrifice you made, Jesus, that you took on human flesh, you lived a perfect life, and then you laid that perfect life down as a sacrifice for our brokenness. Lord, I pray that as we continue our series that we keep that truth first and foremost and as we learn to deal with disunity and division within the church over secondary issues that we remind ourselves that the basis is because we have such central core clear truths that we must be united on and how you demonstrated for that for us in your death and your life Lord Jesus we love you we praise you exalt you today. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I too hosted about 10 kids uh, over the weekend, teenagers, so I'm a little sleepy, so bear with me. But I know, I know what's going to wake me up. I know your voices coming together uh, to worship God is going to wake me up. So good morning and welcome to Grace. Grace is mm, didn't do it. I need a bigger alarm clock. Let's try again. Good morning and welcome to Grace. There you go. As you walked in this morning, you were handed a worship guide. And we've got a section of worship guide we've called the communication card. Now, if you guys are new with us here at Grace Bible Church, we like to say welcome. We're glad you're here with us today. But we also would love to hear from you. So if you would, on your communication card, write your name, information, and then check off the little box that says, I'm new. At the end of the service, when we pick up the offering, tear out the communication card and drop it in the basket. And by doing so, guys, we have a gift for you. It's one of the kids that was left over from the Switch Weekend. Take them with you. Great kids. No, I'm just joking. It's a book called How Good is Good Enough. It's just a simple way of saying thanks for coming and spending your morning here with us at Grace Bible Church. After the service, see me outside in the foyer, and I'll be more than happy to give you your kid. Again, it's a joke. Your book. You've been attending Grace for a while now, and maybe... And maybe you have some questions about your faith. Or better yet, maybe you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and, and you want to get baptized. Let us know right on your communication card. Again, at the end of the service, when we pass the basket along for the offering, drop it in there. We'll get back to you as soon as possible. I just want to share some information that was uh, omitted from the FYI section of your worship guide. As a reminder, we have our new members workshop coming up. March 25th, that's a Saturday at 9 a.m. Now, if you guys have been considering becoming a member here at Grace Bible Church or just want to know what it's about, how to be committed and becoming a member, write it on your communication card, and I'll send you an email as a reminder as that date approaches. One more thing, uh, next week is spring break, not this week, but the next is spring break, and we will not have one or the edge ministry uh, for our kids during spring break. At this time, I want you guys to check out this video.
Good morning, Grace. Hey, I want to follow up the, the video. Inside your worship guide, you have a little card like this. This is our, our Easter message title. Uh, it's going to be a great Easter service we are already planning and putting together. Uh, it's going to be one of those that no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, uh, it's going to really speak to your heart. It's going to be a, a story that Jesus told that really kind of turns all of religion upside down and, and shares the heart of the gospel probably better than any other story that he, he shared. And so it's a great opportunity for you to invite friends and family. And what this card is, is kind of a card we've designed for the season of Lent. Lent, uh, if you're familiar with it, is a, uh, a tradition that is not necessarily in the Bible, but it was the early church that kind of put this together as a time to prepare going up to uh, Easter Sunday, and it used the, the, the number of days of 40 days because that's such a prominent number in the Bible of different events, and so the 40 days prior to Easter was what came to be known as Lent. And what we're going to do this season is use this time as preparation for us in particular in our modern culture that's so busy and so running around doing different things and then the Saturday before Easter comes we're going like oh my goodness it's Easter tomorrow you know it almost loses the anticipation of how significant of an event it is and so Lent is one of those ways where we can prepare our hearts and begin remembering uh, what that season is all about and so here's how this card is designed you don't have to fill it out right now it's for you to take uh, if you have multiple people in your group and you just have one worship guide, we have plenty of extra cards on the back table. You can grab one and leave. But it's designed with a couple things in mind. One of them is, as you see at the top, is to commit to inviting the following people to an Easter service and pray that God will reveal himself to them. So Lent sometimes, unfortunately, is known as what we give up, and it's just something we give up. But that's not the point of it. Jesus didn't just give up his life just for the sake of, of torturing himself. He did it to gain something that was of much greater value to him. He did it, as the scriptures say, for the joy set before him, that he could be reunited and redeem a people for himself. And so our mindset this Lent is going to be that as well, is first we want to aim for those whom God has given us the opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ with in our lives. And it may be three people, it may be one person, it may be five people. This is just a suggestion of people you work with or family members or neighbors that you want to begin praying for specifically during the season. And then to remind you of it, the idea of Lent helps us with that. So right below it, it says this, until Easter Sunday, I will give up the following Monday through Saturday. So I'll explain that Monday through Saturday in a minute. But in that line, you're going to write something in there. And it could be a fast of any number of things. It could be a food fast of a certain uh, type on a certain day each week or, or a certain type of food. It could be social media. It could be TV. It could be eating out, video games. You name it. The idea is that you put something there that is something that maybe is too important to you or is important to you and you say, for this season, I'm going to set that aside so that every time I resist and don't en enjoy that in a sense, I'm reminded of what Jesus was willing to give up to come to earth and bring salvation for me. So it's simply a tangible reminder that keeps us focused first on Jesus and then says, the reason I want to be focused on Jesus is so that I'm focusing as well on people who don't know Jesus and remembering what Jesus was willing to do for me when I didn't know him. So you write down what you want in there and then below it says this, my purpose for doing so is to make me more aware of what Jesus gave up to provide my salvation. It will also remind me to joyfully pray for those named above and read my Bible in place of what I'm temporarily forfeiting. So it's reminding that we're going to put something in that object's place, not just give it up. So two things I want to maybe suggest for you. One is how many of you use the, the Bible app? The, what's it called? My Bible. U version. There you go. If you search U version on there, the Bible app. On there, there's all kinds of devotionals. There's a great one uh, called Preparing for the Lent Season by Redeemer Church. If you search that, it's a great little devotional you can use, and every day it'll give you a reading. It's short. You have it right on your phone. No matter where you're at, you have it with you. Uh, that would be one great option is search that out and use that. Another simple option as well is to read a gospel. 
In fact, I would suggest the Gospel of Luke. It has 24 chapters in it. They're not long. And if you were to read four chapters every week during the Lent season, you would finish it by Easter perfectly. And so it allows you to focus on the life of Jesus as you're spending some time thinking about him. So uh, an object of what you put in here, I'll share with you one of the things I'm going to do is for my object I'm going to give up this week, it's going to be... Hang on. I'm going to give up... Hang on, I'll get it. I'll take a breath. I'm going to give up. It starts with a C and ends with Afi. I know. It's not going to be easy. My wife suggested sex, but I said no man should have to suffer that much during Lent. So I'm going with coffee. But if you know, coffee at my age with five kids is a pretty difficult thing to give up. So, but I want to use it as something that every time I'm struggling to let go of that, I'm going to focus on what Christ gave up, and I'm going to focus on those that I'm praying for. And here's, the, here's how this is going to go. I think this is really neat. I've been reading about Lent and some of these things in preparation, wanting to do something like this. And here's one idea I thought was just really unique is one suggestion was this, is during the season of Lent, Monday through Saturday, you give up that particular object. Every Monday through Saturday. But come Sunday, you can enjoy it. So that every single Sunday, the idea is, is every single Sunday is like a mini Easter in preparation for the ultimate Easter. And what it does is it reminds us that, that that ultimate Easter, God, Jesus ushers all things in and makes all things new. And so at Easter, we get to enjoy that. So every week leading up to it, Sunday is a day that if you're giving up a TV series, you can binge watch it all day Sunday if you want. But come midnight, you've got to shut it off and go back to your regular routine. It makes Sunday a special day to remind us that he came to give us new life and to bring us a joy we don't normally have. So... Keep that, uh, stick it on your mirror, stick it in your bathroom mirror, uh, in your Bible, on your nightstand, wherever that would be that would help you. Take one home with you. You fill that out. You're not going to turn this in. This is all of us doing something united, but each of us doing it in a unique way that will help us further focus on Jesus during this series and be mindful of those people in our lives that, that we could lead uh, them toward Jesus. Uh, one more thing is following up with Tony and Holly Garcia. You all have given uh, over $6,700 to Tony and Holly for helping them with their medical expenses. So I'm super grateful for the generosity of our church. Uh, many of you know Pat, Tony uh, was one of our missionaries, Tony and Holly. He passed away a couple weeks ago with cancer complications and so uh, had a lot of medical expenses associated with that. And so uh, this will be the last week you can give to that. There's envelopes on the back table and you can also do it online. There's an account that says, Tony and Holly Garcia so this will be the last week we'll be receiving those and and handing them all off to Holly to help out with those expenses so thank you all so much for the generosity our church has shown to uh, just bless them through this difficult season Today we begin or continue our series, Be Transformed and, and if you are new with us we've been walking through the book of Romans which is Paul's probably most significant letter that he wrote that puts so many biblical truths and theological truths together in the most concise, uh, comprehensive manner uh, that he did in any of his letters. It's always been thought that way by biblical scholars and pastors and believers. But we ha covered the first two sections of it uh, the last few semesters, and we're in the last section, chapters 12 through 15. After dealing with all the theology of chapters 1 through 11, chapter 12 through 15 become really practical truths. Kind of the so what of the book. Now that we know this, now that we believe this, now that we understand this, how should we now live as Christians? And so that's the section we're in. And today in chapter 14 and 15, as we begin this segment of it, we're going to deal with a topic that is maybe one of the most significant practical topics within the church today. Here's what's interesting about it. And, and in a book that has 16 chapters, as significant as Romans is, and all that God packed in it through the Apostle Paul's pen, he took two chapters to deal with this topic we're going to talk about this week, next week, and the following week in different manners. Two full chapters. That's about 15% of a book on this practical matter. 
And the matter is uh, a lack of unity or divisiveness in the church. It, it deals with uh, ways in which we constantly nitpick at things or are divided over, over secondary issues, what the Bible would call non-moral issues, what we're going to look at today. We love to divide as Christians. I mean, we have master's degrees in crankiness. We have PhDs in divisiveness. We have post-doctorate work in criticism. I mean, we're just kind of quirky that way as Christians. And as, as American Christians in particular, if there is some way we can divide and create our own little church or create our own little group, we'll do it. Now, I'm not saying there aren't proper things to divide about. The Bible is very clear. There are important things that, that we should divide about. The deity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ. The salvation comes only through Jesus Christ, the character of God, that the Dallas Cowboys are the only chosen team. Those are things that you should divide about as a church. The fact is, though, the majority of church splits throughout history did not have to do with those things. The majority of splits that maybe you and I have been involved in in churches had nothing to do with those things. They had to do with things like Paul is talking about in this chapter that aren't moral issues. They happen over things like music style. They happen even over paint color and carpet color that we should have in the sanctuary. They happen over should we have coffee in the sanctuary or shouldn't we? They happen over should we wear coat and ties or shorts and sandals to church? They happen over silly things like that that we make so central that we would divide as Christians over them. Things like that that are life-altering, internally shattering issues like coffee or clothes. You see, the fact is, we all have personal preferences, even convictions when it comes to some of these non-moral matters. So how are we to work through them? What are we to do when we strongly disagree with someone in a personal conviction area like these? Well, that's why God gave us passages like this, because he knew how important they would be. They knew how important it would be to take such a diverse group of people with such unique and different backgrounds as the church and bring them together to be unified when we really like our own ways. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Romans chapter 14. And let's take a look at this. Again, over 15% of the book of Romans, a theological, you know, pillar in the Bible, but 15% of it is focused on this issue. And it's something that we as individualistic Americans could benefit tremendously from. And in this passage in Romans 14, there's four things I want you to see here. Okay, four very simple things we're going to look at in just four verses. The first is a problem. There is a problem that existed in this church in Rome, and it exists even today. The second is going to see a, is a wrong solution. What's a wrong way we might try to solve this? Or what do we typically do as, as people when these issues come up? The second is a right solution. And then finally, we're going to see the basis for that right solution. So a problem, a wrong solution, a right solution, and the basis for that solution. So Romans 14, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you don't, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And in your worship guide with the notes, the page number will take you to this passage as we look at the first four verses, or you can follow along on the screen. So let's start. We'll look at the first two verses to see the problem, okay? So Paul's penning these words to the church in Rome, and he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, really important. In fact, if you have your own Bible, circle that, because Paul will shorten that throughout the passage, and it's important to understand who he's talking to. He says, for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now he's going to define what he's referring to as weak in faith or a person that's, say, less mature in their faith. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person or the less mature person eats only vegetables. 
Okay, so Paul's creating a division that's taking place in here. One person believes he made anything, and in a nutshell, that's going to be the more mature person in this passage, and the weaker or less mature person eats only vegetables in this case, and we're going to talk about why that is. Basically, here's the gist of it. is It's simply biblical proof that those West Coast tree-hugging, granola-eating, pita-loving people are less mature than us South Texas meat-eating Christians. That's basically the nutshell of this passage. Let's pray, and you'll be dismissed. (laughs) I'm kidding, all right? I hope I didn't offend any of you if you're from the West Coast. We spent 10 years in Oregon. I've actually worn Birkenstocks with wool socks, so I can throw those stones because I've been in that crowd in my life. So let me tell you what's really going on uh, in a nutshell, some background to understand this. In Rome... And we saw this earlier in the book because Paul was dealing with issues between Jewish believers and, and Gentiles. So in Rome, you have this church that's primarily Gentiles and Gentile territory, meaning non-Jewish territory in Rome, but there is Jewish people there and Jewish believers in this church. So you have Gentile believers and you have Jewish believers. And what had probably happened in this church is this. Jewish people, if you know, in the Old Testament had certain meats that they could not eat. There was clean meats and there is unclean meats and part of those dietary laws that God created accomplished two purposes in their lives as he called them out of Egypt and was making a distinct people for himself one purpose was this is he wanted them to understand that when you get to know me as your God when you worship this God that there is a sense of holiness you need to understand about the God you worship and with that holiness the concept of cleanness helped them understand that so he'd say you do not eat these kinds of animals they're unclean and these type are clean and if you eat unclean then you were unclean for a while and you couldn't enter into worship so it helped them tangibly understand that this god that we're getting to know is a god of holiness of cleanness the second thing it was designed to do for the Israelites was to help them be a distinct people from the pagan nations in which they had come out of And so some of those guidelines help them look differently and live differently than the people around them because God wanted them to be a holy people like he was holy. And so those dietary laws help them look that way. Now, the point of those dietary laws were never to really make them clean and never really made them any different than people around them, but it pointed them towards the process that would It pointed them towards Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection would make them distinct and would make them clean in his death and resurrection. So when Jesus came and the gospel was made known to everyone, what happens is Jesus said, hey, I declare all foods clean. Food can never make you holy. Eating something different can never make you more holy than someone else that eats it. That, like, that's to bring God down to a plane that that's, you know, minimizes his holiness. It took God himself to die on a cross and offer himself as a sacrifice through Jesus Christ for us to be cleansed. And so a Jewish believer now, as a Christian, as he matured, should be willing to let go of those dietary restrictions, those past religious experiences. However, just like you and I, old habits die really hard. When you've been brought up in a tradition and your people have been brought up with a tradition for thousands of years and now suddenly you can stop doing that, it doesn't happen quickly. And in fact, in Rome, in Rome where there wasn't much of a Jewish population, it was probably extremely difficult to get kosher meats that were acceptable for Jewish people. And so what did they do? They just said, we just won't eat meat. We'll just eat vegetables so we don't violate those principles. And Paul was saying, you gotta welcome those people in. Their view is not mature. They're a weaker believer because they think that that meat makes them clean, but the fact is that's just where they're at right now. They're coming out of that scenario. So that's one scenario where they were less mature than the Gentiles who were willing to eat whatever because they knew that it was all clean. Now the other side pertains to the Gentiles. Some of the Gentiles in Rome uh, 
had come out of very paganistic type religions. And it was common in that day that pagans offered sacrificial animals to their gods as well. And so what often would happen in places like Rome or Ephesus, you'd have these temples and, and you'd bring your sacrifice just like that. You'd bring the best of your meats, you'd bring the best of your cow or your lamb and you'd bring it to that priest and that priest would slaughter that animal and use the blood for that sacrifice, but the meat would stay there. And so that priest might take a little chunk of the meat and then he would take it to the little variety meats that was attached right there to the side of the temple and they would use it and they'd sell it, the rest of it to the public. I'm joking, it wasn't a variety of meats, but, but it was a meat market. The meat markets would be attached to the temple and guess where the best meat in the whole town was? Right, if you brought the fatted calf, if you brought your best lamb to the temple to be sacrificed, guess which place had the best meat in town? The, the meat market that was right near the temple. Okay, now picture this for a moment. If you were a, a once a worshiper of that pagan god before you became a believer, now suddenly you're a believer and you realize that's a false god and I'm now worshiping the true god, how might you feel about eating meat from that meat market? When you once brought offerings and saw not just the sacrifices but the prostitution that was often associated with that type of worship there was all kinds of sexual misdeeds that went along with worship of a lot of these pagan gods you would associate all that stuff together with it and for you you'd go I'm not eating that meat ever again and that might be a conviction you would have at that moment what Paul will eventually say is that, hey, there are no other gods but the true God. There's only one true God. Every other God is just a man-made, made-up God. They're not real. So those sacrifices to some pagan God are just a man-made sacrifice to someone else. So they, as long as you're not worshiping that God and as long as you don't believe in it, whether you eat the leftover meat or not, it's really not a big deal. You know the true God and Jesus cleanses all things. So the mature view is to be able to eat it. But if you just came out of that religion, for you, it might be difficult to eat. And so what was happening is you had people in the church that had all different personal convictions about, should I eat this meat because of my background or shouldn't I? And they were starting to fight over it. They were getting upset with one another. And Paul comes in and says, first of all, let's keep the first things first. And let me show you how you can relate to each other when you have differing convictions on non-moral issues. And so here's your first point, is a mature Christian should welcome less mature Christians with unity. Mature Christians should welcome less mature Christians with unity. The, in the big picture of this, and, and I wanna challenge you, for those of you who are mature Christians here today, the majority of the commands and the addresses and the exhortations in chapters 14 and 15 are addressed to mature Christians and how we should be the least divisive in the church. The sad thing is, is it's usually the other way around. We sometimes have more and more convictions in areas that are secondary uh, and, and we become more and more restrictive or divisive as we get or we, we supposedly become more mature. And so Paul's addressing that. And he's saying, hey, welcome them. He says, don't invite someone into your small group or bring them over for dinner simply so you can change their opinion about some issue that you feel strongly about, some secondary non-moral issue. Treat them and welcome them. Let me just give you some common issues here that may show up modern day like this one did here. One of them is, say, your personal style of worship. Right, you might like uh, rockin', upbeat type music, and someone else likes the old hymns. And the rocker thinks, oh man, they can just get rid of that old stuff, can't they get out of the 1500s and get up to my style? Man, I'm so much more mature. And the hymner's going, this is the, the music of our faith. I mean, this is the foundation. I can't believe these kids nowadays, they listen to this crazy music, it's so immature. Right, and we fight over it. Churches split over this. And yet the Bible says nothing about style of music. The content, it is, there's no such thing as Christian music. There's only Christian lyrics. And so this is a non-central issue. 
and let churches divide over it. People get upset over it. And what Paul is saying is that get over it. If someone else, if the rocker likes the rocker music, that's his issue. If you like the hymner music, or I'm making it up, hymner, rocker, hymner, that's your issue, that's great. You don't have to make the rocker a hymner, and the rocker doesn't need to make the hymner a rocker. Just love the fact that we get that variety within their body. Paul's, that's one example. Homeschooling and public schooling. That's another one I've seen divide churches. It's a non-moral issue. You can homeschool for the right reasons. We've done that in our family at times. You can homeschool for the wrong reasons. You can go to public school for the right reasons. You can go to public school for the wrong reasons. I've seen horrible examples in both of those cases, and I've seen great examples in both of them. They are non-moral issues, but in some camps, they will become much more important than they really should be. Casual dress or formal dress. Suit and tie, coat type, that's the only way we should dress for church or casual, and the more casual, the better you are, right? Just because Jesus wore sandals, so we should wear sandals, and, and he probably had a baggy robe, so I wear my baggy pants. You know, who cares? Are we really gonna get all uptight about that and, and, and enforce our convictions on someone else in non-moral issues? And yet we do as churches all the time in these areas. Standards of modesty, the Bible talks about modesty, but the standard of modesty can look different in different cultures. Have you ever thought about that? I was, now, I haven't never shared this with y'all, but I was a, a child prodigy. So I was working on my first PhD when I was in uh, fifth grade. And one of my PhDs, just one of them, I have multiple PhDs when I was a, a child. One of my PhDs was in cultural studies and these kinds of issues. So I was dealing with this idea of modesty in different colors and I would study all the National Geographic magazines when I was in fifth grade. <laughs> because they were all about cultural modesty. And that. Now, some of you are laughing because I think, I know why you were looking at those National Geographics. I was doing my PhD and doing research for my project. And what you realize is that different cultures have different standards of modesty. If you were to bring a Middle Eastern family here into our church, then even the most conservative dressers in America would offend some Middle Eastern families in their dress. Whereas when I go to your, I'm not even gonna say it. I'm just <laughs> the point is, the lines aren't always as clear as we would like them to be. Maybe within a culture they are, but when you start blending cultures, those lines aren't quite as clear. What is non-moral and what is moral is difficult for us to sometimes distinguish between. And oftentimes we make more of it than we should. Another one, drinking alcohol or no drinking of alcohol. The Bible's clear about drunkenness, but it doesn't say a whole lot about drinking alcohol or not drinking it. And yet some camps can turn that into a moral issue and make it more than it really is. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage. And I don't know about your experience, but my experience is that more churches have split and divide over these types of issues than they ever have over real issues like the deity of Christ, like salvation in Christ, like things that churches should divide over. We divide over these secondary things. So here's our wrong solution in that. Here's one way in which we do it wrongly. Look at what the next verse says. In this passage, we'll play. It says, let not the one, this is verse three, let not the one who eats, so that's the, the mature one in this case, let not the one who has the freedom to eat despise the one who abstains, or the weak one, the less mature. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So there's the wrong solution. This is typically what happens in the church, is the, the one who can eat, it's more mature, they start to despise the one who abstains. 
They say, oh man, come on, you guys are so narrow-minded, you're so like tight-wadded and all this kind of, we, we start doing that because we think we're more mature. And so the wrong solution is they want to say, hey, you need to be more open-minded. That is simply an issue of being more open-minded and welcoming everything in. That's not what this is saying. The, the immature one says uh, they want to pass judgment. The one who abstains wants to pass judgment on the one who eats. They want to say, you need to narrow your practices down to mine. They become extremely narrow-minded, and the only way to obey this principle is to do it my way. In modern terms, this is Republicans and Democrats. I mean, this is our modern day solution. Republicans are the types that they have some moral guidelines and they say, you gotta do it this way and it's, it's kind of the white way is the right way. Kind of, it's that culture that kind of dominates it. Unless you do it like this culture, then, then it, it, you, you're just wrong. The Democrats, they're kind of like open-minded to the point of, hey, just whatever truth is truth, everyone should be accepted, and and every truth is right, and it's relative to whatever that person is. And so they widen it out too wide, and the other end narrows it out too narrow. But that's not what this passage is saying. It's confronting both of those mindsets. It confronts our human mindset that either wants to narrow things too much or widen them too much. Look at what Paul is saying. He says, don't despise the one who abstains and don't judge the one who's free to eat. He also says earlier that there's a mature position and there's an immature one. He doesn't say both positions are equal, both are exactly the same. He actually says there is a path in which you will go when you mature in your view on this. But in the midst of that, we're gonna love each other through that transition. So here's the right solution, is really just flipping this negative statement around to put it like this, is mature Christians should value those who are less mature concerning non-moral issues. Mature Christians should value those who are less mature concerning non-moral issues. Instead of despising them, we should value them. In fact, first seek to understand why they have those certain convictions before you try to convince them otherwise. Oftentimes, there's something in that person's background, like there is in all of ours, that's led to that particular conviction when they became a Christian. Maybe there was alcoholism in their family. Maybe they were an alcoholic. And so when they became a Christian, when they finally found some freedom from something that consumed their life for so long and caused so much hurt in their family, maybe it was a family member of themselves, they just said, you know what? I've never seen anything positive come from alcohol in my experience. Therefore, as a Christian, it's wrong for me to drink alcohol. And for them, it might be because of their background, because of their family. In fact, it might be a whole family generation thing where for them it would be best not to touch it and maybe their children or their children's children will be the first generation they'll ever get to the point where they say hey we have the maturity and we have the distance from this pain to enjoy alcohol in a proper godly manner but you know what we often do we often snub our noses as those who have that maturity already and maybe don't have that background and feel the freedom to drink and we snub our noses at those who won't instead of loving them in their journey and understanding why they feel that way. Maybe it's your religious upbringing. And in your religious upbringing, you were told to dress in a certain way, you were told to not do these certain things and and, and all this other stuff that was real much drilled into you for a long time. And so in your conscience, those things appear wrong to you. And so you tend to have a little bit more stringent guidelines than the next person because of that background. And at that point, they seem wrong to you. And sometimes those who didn't have that snub their noses at them and and call them narrow-minded or or despise, do all the things that we tend to do, but we don't take the time to understand their background. Maybe it's a cultural background, and in that culture, things were done differently than, than your culture. But we're, we are like, culture, culture is kind of like the water in a fishbowl. A fish never really knows he's swimming around in it. 
It's just us looking from the outside that can see it. Culture is the same way. You don't see your own culture until you get out of it and see another culture. And so you always think that your culture was right. And it wasn't. Every culture has beautiful things in it and every culture has areas that need to be redeemed in it. And so different ways things can be expressed can, can change as we do that. But seeking to understand why people have those convictions helps us be more understanding and accepting, in particular as mature Christians. The second one, the right solution is flips it around, is the less mature Christians should respect those with more maturity concerning non-moral issues. So rather than judging them, as the passage says, they should respect them. Okay, the, the, the less mature Christians are usually, sometimes how this happens is, like I said, you become a Christian, you're on fire for God, and you're doing all these things, and, and you're setting aside all these things, you're stopping all these things you know, that you used to do, and that's a great process, that's part of it. But sometimes what you do is you try to put in so many little religious things into your life because of your excitement over Jesus that you overdo it. And sometimes it's necessary because of where you did live. But what happens is you put them, is you put all those things in your life, you're so excited, you see someone that's walked with the Lord for 20 years and they're not doing things exactly the same way you do it and you go, I love Jesus way more than them. I can't believe how you know, hypocritical they are. They, they, they're doing stuff like that. I mean, talking about non-moral issues here. They don't raise their hands and jump up and down like I do. They don't read their Bible as many times as I do during the day, even though that they're single at that age and, and someone else may be a, a mom at home that's just happy to even see her Bible, much less read it. It's just different. But they want to judge them because they're not doing the exact same things that they're doing. And that's typical when we're young, when we're less mature. But just be careful imposing your convictions on someone else you see. That's kind of the gist of this passage. These are non-moral things. There is nothing wrong with you having a personal conviction in a non-moral area. But that's exactly what it is, a personal conviction. And yours can and will be different than other people's. Love them through that journey. You're going to get further just loving them and welcoming them and spending time with them and helping them see things differently than you are despising them or judging them to help them do so. The last thing we see in here is this, the basis for it. What's the basis for it? Verse 4 kind of gives us that in a nutshell. It says this, uh, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So here, here's this passage in a nutshell. It's saying, and it, it, Paul's using a rhetorical question to say, who are we to pass judgment on the servant of another? And we know that, we're no one. You're not my servant. I'm not your servant when it comes to this matter. We are servants of the Lord God. He is our master. And in these issues of non-moral issues, he will pass judgment on our convictions when the time comes, which should motivate us to make sure our convictions are mature, to make sure we're not inflicting them on others because then we're judging and we're not. And he's saying here, he's going to make a stand, meaning judge as you might someone else's convictions, despise as you might someone else's convictions, when they're brought before the Lord in the final day, they are going to stand and you are going to stand as the one who looks bad. It's you versus God when it comes to this issue. But how can that be, we say? You see, when I pass judgment or despise another believer, for their non-moral convictions, I'm acting as if I'm their master. I'm acting as if I'm their God. But I'm not. And they will stand when the true judgment on those convictions come, meaning God is going to affirm them in those personal convictions based on how they lived according to them or not at that time. Not you and me, not whether they're the right convictions or not. 
And the reason they'll stand is because there was another servant, a true servant of God, who came to this earth, took on human flesh, and, and let me tell you, he, he put up with a whole bunch of immature followers. Tons of ridiculous Christians that have all kinds of crazy little super, you know, suspicious and religious little activities we do that we think make us more mature and, and more acceptable to God. And yet, he just smiled at them. In fact, I think, you know how our kids will try little tricks on us to thinking that they can sway their parents to do something good and we're just kind of chuckling because we go, I totally see through that. I, I did that, in fact, I did it even better when I was your age. God has a refrigerator up in heaven. And I think there's times when he just laughs. He says, oh, Chad, I can't believe you're trying that again. You really think you're going to get your way if you just do that little thing, Chad? And he just sticks those little pictures up on the fridge, and he chuckles, oh, Chad, you're so cute. Hey, guys, come over. Look at this. Look at what Chad's trying this time. Hilarious. And he doesn't just throw me out. He doesn't just throw you out. He lovingly accepts me, and he lovingly works with me. And Jesus did that while he was here on earth. He welcomed immature. He welcomed narrow-minded. He welcomed too open-minded to him and showed them and lovingly guided them to where they needed to be. And after doing that perfectly, after being the perfect Christian like we see in this passage, perfectly mature, perfectly unified, instead, when the end of his life came, he was despised and he was judged. The way in which we treat each other is how Jesus was treated for you and for me. So that when we are judged in these non-moral issues, God can make us stand. Jesus took the fall so that you and I could be made to stand. So let me just leave you with three simple practical applications today. And if you have a pen, I'd encourage you to write these down. These are so important. As I said, the next three weeks, we'll be talking about similar issues in our lives. But today we're talking about some personal things right here, our personal convictions. So here's the first thing I'd like to challenge you to do that I think we can take from this passage. Is first this, take time to examine closely if the practice of your conviction or your personal conviction is moral or non-moral? Meaning, is it a right or wrong in the Bible? Or is it maybe just an application of a principle that you have made right or wrong? Let me give you an example. One of them is adultery. Okay, that's a moral issue. You can't just say, well, adultery is wrong for you, but it's not for me. I have a different personal conviction. You, know, you don't get that option. Adultery is wrong. Modesty, on the other hand, could look differently. You have to be modest. The Bible calls us to be modest, but that might look different in different cultures. Adultery, there's no question. You don't wake up and go, oh my goodness, you're not my wife. I had no idea I was sleeping with someone else. Right? You know you either are an adulterer or you're not. Modest has some edges around it. You need to stop and ask yourself in some of your convictions, are they moral or non-mortal? Drinking, drunkenness. This is clearly moral. Drinking, what do we really know about that? Or having an alcoholic beverage. That's the first thing. Stop and take some time to evaluate your convictions. Second is this. Understand it's okay for Christians to have differing convictions in these areas. Understand that. It's okay for you to not be comfortable drinking and someone else to be comfortable drinking if that's a non-moral issue. It's okay. We don't all have to have the same convictions in every single area. Just take that breath and say, man, I don't have to convince everyone to be just like me. It's just, it's just okay. So know yours. Know that it's okay for people to have differing ones. And lastly... If you think you are a mature Christian, then you will be the one to initiate unity, not the one to be the most critical. Paul says it's the mature Christian who should initiate unity 
with the less mature. Which means the more mature you are, the more open you should be to different non-moral convictions. You should be the last person going around trying to make everyone have the same personal convictions that you are. Instead, you should be welcoming them and loving them and encouraging them along in their journey in those particular areas. Could you imagine a church that put these principles into practice? A church that was open and was welcoming to people of different convictions in these areas, of people of different cultures, people of different backgrounds, socioeconomically, racially, culturally, people who would love those who were very different than them in some of their non-moral convictions, but still challenge them in a way in which they could grow in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a great church. That would be a church that looks a lot like heaven will one day look. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you that they are so practical and so pertinent to the life of the church today. Lord, thank you as well that you can't open this passage, you can't open these verses and not be personally challenged, Lord. I know we are all people who love to have convictions, myself included. I'm kind of strong-willed, and, and I tend to be stubborn. And that's okay if I'm dealing with my own convictions. But Lord, help me to be one who can love those who in these non-moral areas have different convictions, and their story is different, their background is different than mine. And we can be a body that demonstrates a beauty of diversity while still being unified around what Jesus did to make each of us stand. Yes, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.